Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Greenbelt's Somewhere to Believe in podcast. In this series, a nun, a rabbi, a Muslim convert, a Lutheran firebrand, a humanist, an American liberation theologian, a retired Met police officer and an LGBTQ priest all walk into a bar. You know they always say don't talk about religion or politics. Well, funny that because that's what we like to talk about most at Greenbelt. Perhaps that makes us impolite. Find out and join us in this series of no-holds-barred conversations with extraordinary people who are prepared to wear their hearts on their rolled-up sleeves for whom faith isn't personal, who get stuck in because of what they believe. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. So here we are for the last episode in Series 3 of our podcast. Yeah, we've done it. Can you believe it? No, one year. Oh, well, just a little bit over one year. What a year it's been. Oh, yeah, one year. Of course, I, you're not just thinking about this series. You're thinking about three series. One year, one year's worth of podcasting. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a year. What a year. <laughs> I mean, we don't want next year to be like this year, do we? Preferably not. Hey, and on a recent um, episode, Catherine, we were bigging up the Methodists for adopting uh, or giving permission for same-sex marriages in their churches. But another of our partner denominations, the URC, the United Reformed Church, they've done something really cool and radical at their recent assembly too, haven't they? Yeah. They um, they had a recent assembly, and I think it ended on about the 12th of July, where they came out um, and talked about the situation in Israel-Palestine. And what they've said is that um, they're encouraging people to buy Palestinian products and to stop buying products that have been made by uh, out of the Israeli settlements that are happening in Palestine. Very radical, and they're going to get a lot of flack for that. But good on them. Yeah, I was really, I was really heartened and encouraged by that. You know, when you put it together with what we learned about the Methodists, and I thought, you know, for all. For all that it's easy to, to diss the church and to say everything that's wrong with the church, you know, there are a lot of really good people trying to do really, really good and brave stuff. And that in particular from the URC, they are, like Catherine said, they're going to get a lot of flack for that. Um, we know from Greenbelt that when you try and proactively step into that situation and say stuff about it, it doesn't always go well. The, you know, during my time in Greenback, I, I learn about all these different denominations and you just, you realise how they are living out their faith and how radical they are being and how badass they are being in a way that I never really expected and I'm completely in awe. So, Paul, um, we've been getting some emails in. We have. It's always nice to hear about what people are thinking. Um, sometimes they're very complimentary and encouraging that people value the presence of Greenbelt. That's always lovely. But just as good is to hear about things that people think, oh, come on, you could do something a bit differently there. You could do something better there. And um, we read all of them and, and they're good. So keep them coming. Any standout in particular to you, Catherine? We had a lovely RE teacher, didn't we, um, uh, write into us about when we were having a discussion about, um, was it colonialism that's taught in RE? 
That's right. Yeah. And, you know, Catherine and I are no experts on this. So a lot of what we say on the podcast is just stuff that we're picking up or reading. You know, it's not necessarily something that we know about in detail. So we had mentioned the fact that um, kids, uh, there's, it's being mooted that in RE, kids should should be taught about white privilege and, and what that means and connect that with uh, colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, one of our audience who's an RE teacher or a, a you know, an RE resources uh, developer wrote in and said, look, you know, this is really interesting stuff. I'd love to have the chance to talk about this at, at Greenbelt. Um, and we thought, yeah, that would be really interesting to think. You know, we've been thinking about RE in a sense on this podcast, this series, and it'd be really interesting to hear about how it's being taught in schools. Yeah. And she was talking about how um, the amount of hate mail that she's that they've received. Yeah, because she was saying they've been specifically trying to tie the study of religion to uh, thinking about racism and anti-racism. It's just so sad. It seems so prevalent that if you try and do something about racism or if you try and put your head above the parapet, it, it invites all this bile. There's another RE teacher called Lap. Uh, Blaycock, who, who's come to the festival for a long time, who's a friend uh, of, of the person who wrote us this email. And um, he was really interested when we had Russell Brand to the festival to wonder if we could use the content of that conversation with Russell Brand for his RE resources. And, um, you know, again, we're no experts, but I find it really encouraging to think that students at school um, are being encouraged to sort of like dig into these um, these philosophical ways of thinking these different worldviews and i was thinking oh i wish i could study re now at school sounds really good <laughs> maybe we need to get some re lessons at the festival we could do that can we <laughs> yeah re lessons for adults who <laughs> sort of the first time round had a very different sort of re education <laughs> leads us nicely into our next podcast guest this week doesn't it who have we got on the pod this week paul well some would say we've saved the best till last we've got festival favorite uh, nadia boltz weber and we had a fantastic conversation with her we've been really looking forward to it it was really early in the morning where nadia was in denver when we spoke to her so she was a little bit bleary-eyed but she'd had a few cups of coffee um and just to say that we didn't get the audio quite right so there are a few little sort of rustly and scratchy moments but um it doesn't deter from what was a fantastic conversation we had a great time with her didn't we Catherine? yeah definitely Thank you so much for joining us. It must be yeah. hideously early there, is it? How early is it? Oh, it's like 7.15, but I, I mean, I've been awake since like, f for like three hours, so oh. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. And and what's the reason for being awake for so long? Is that just a usual pattern or... Uh, it's because I'm nearly 52 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> I just... I just um, yeah, my my body just stops sleeping at a certain hour and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So I just kind of get on with it, as you guys say. This year, I mean, as it has been for everybody, has been a really sort of difficult year to quite know what to do uh, about mm. Greenbelt and planning it and booking it. And yeah. it's emails like yours mm. that come <laughs> in when you just say, look, I want to be there, count me in, that just yeah. make all the difference to the way we feel. And we wanted to say just a huge thank you for that oh, sort of vote of yeah. solidarity. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have, a, a pro I feel a profound loyalty. <laughs> 
loyalty to and love for Greenbelt. It's an important it's an important thing to me, to be honest. It's not just, oh, a gig I get to do sometimes, you know, it's it's a lot more than that to me. So, yeah. How long have you been coming to the festival? For? You know, I was trying to sort that out, and I, uh, I want to say that, like, my first year might have been, gosh, I don't know, maybe 2006? Yeah, I think that, was, yeah. that sounds about right, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. 2006, 2007. Yeah, and then uh, I think it was 2011 when I preached it on the the Festival Eucharist. And uh, my friend Martin Poole uh, put that service together where those big ribbons were. The ribbons, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have great, great Greenbelt memories. And, you know, just to indulge myself a minute about Greenbelt is that it's to, to say it's not just, oh, it's one of the gigs I have during the year in the place that it's played. It was very going to into Greenbelt and connecting with fresh expressions folks in the Church of England was extremely influential and instrumental in me starting House for All Sinners and Saints, which I started in 2007 to uh, 2008. Um, it it meant it meant a lot, and it's it's interesting that I could come back to Greenbelt and talk about my ministry when the fact is is that my ministry at the very beginning was influenced by what I had been exposed to at Greenbelt. That's really really interesting to think of it that way around, or to hear you tell that story, Nadia, because I think for lots of us at Greenbelt, myself included, we look to you if we look at it the other way around we think ah this is this is the way to go this is what we need to in some senses learn from replicate try and embody where we are um so it's really interesting to hear you tell us. but that's just like a british form of low self-esteem i think because you guys i i don't i'm not sure how i could have imagined how, what House for All Sinners and Saints ended up being had I not spent time in the UK with Fresh Expressions communities. Nadia, should, can we take it back to, um, you know, where uh, how you got into being a Lutheran and your journey into that and, and into creating the House for All Saints and Sinners, which, by the way, I love the idea of the House for All Saints and Sinners. <laughs> I think as I was reading more about it, I, I completely felt like that was what we were trying to create a green belt as well mm. so i love i love that but yeah can we take can we take it back and just go back to the starts of your story i mean i was raised really very conservative christian like fundamentalist very sectarian even like um we we were taught that we were the only real christians we we're the only ones going to heaven and people would be like is your new friend Susie a Christian? And I'd have to go, oh, no, she's Baptist. <laughs> or she's Methodist, you know. So anybody who wasn't Church of Christ was not saved or whatever. So, um, And women could not preach or, or serve in any form of leadership in that church whatsoever. I mean, you couldn't even be an usher, you know, if you were a woman. You, I mean, as a matter of fact... You weren't, you weren't permitted to teach Sunday school classes for children after the kids had turned 12 because a 13-year-old a, a boy had more authority in the church than a grown woman did. So that's what I was raised. And here's the thing. I didn't develop my personality, like, over the past couple months. Like, I was kind of born with this shit, you know, just kind of me. And so it was hard because... 
I didn't, it was, it just became increasingly obvious that I didn't, I could not be who I was and stay in the church. <clears throat> but it was the only form of Christianity I ever knew. How do you regain that? Like, where do you go? I feel like my whole life since I was 17 has been trying to figure out how do I recreate the best parts of how I was raised without all of the bullshit from what from how I was raised and it's and I've tried different ways of doing that so I sojourned in like Wicca circles and neo-pagan circles trying to find what I was looking for for which I'm really grateful I needed to heal for like a decade before I could ever come back to the church and I had to heal in a very female-centered place given how I was raised you know before I could ever come back to my original symbol system of Christianity. I had a pretty impressive drug and alcohol problem, and um, not to brag, it was pretty impressive. <laughs> but um, but I, I got clean and sober, and part of the 12 steps is praying and handing your life over to the care of God, and, and it's sort of the desperation I had in terms of needing to stop drinking and the fact that the people in those rooms of, of AA told me the key is prayer and, and a connection to a higher power, it sort of opened the door back up to me considering that a little more in my life. So then by the time I met uh, my now ex-husband, he was a Lutheran seminary student and he was really interested in social justice. Like when we went on our first date, he's like, well, my heart, we were talking about issues of social justice and he goes, well, my heart for that is really rooted in my Christian faith. And I looked at him, I'm like, what? What are you, like a unicorn? Like some <laughs> mythical combination of creatures? Like, <laughs> those two things don't go together in reality. I'd never heard that. Now, Lutheranism in the U.S. is very different than that the, the small Lutheran population in the U.K. My denomination, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, is the largest Lutheran denomination, millions of members, and we ordain, you know, gay folks. We, uh, obviously have had female clergy for the past 40 years. We have, we have teaching statements on things like criminal justice reform and climate change and things like that. Um, so when I realized there's another form of Christianity that I could actually have some of the good parts of what I was raised with without quite as many of the bad parts, I wasn't idealistic about it, but uh, I thought, oh my gosh, and then I fell in love with like liturgy and sacramental worship and that pattern of shared worship that, that we have in Anglican and Lutheran and Catholic traditions. I really loved that and found that very appealing. So I started going to church and sort of learning about Lutheran theology. And Lutheran theology is very distinct. It has a distinctness to it insofar as it has a point of gravity. Um, the Lutheran understanding of Christianity has a center point, and the center point is grace. So the whole thing for us springs from grace, not from good works, not from proper discipleship, not from interpreting Bible verses the right way. The whole thing is God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And then we live in response to that in terms of serving our neighbor but it always comes back to grace. So in the Lutheran theological system, you cannot, through your striving and piety and goodness, 
uh, be in a better place with God than God has already put you because of God's grace. So all of that stuff kind of goes by the wayside. So most of my teaching and preaching uh, comes from uh, really sort of Orthodox Lutheran teachings. We were keen for our listeners to understand that a bit more. And it sounds like it's a really progressive, vibrant, growing (laughs) denomination. Oh, no, it's not. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, 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 I misspoke. It is. Um, <laughs> there are aspects of, of the ELCA that are very progressive. And I would say on the whole, it skews more progressive, definitely than conservative. But there are very conservative parishes within the ELCA as well, for sure. Is it growing? Uh, no, it's not. It's like every mainline Protestant denomination in America. It is in what we call decline, um, which I have a lot of thoughts about. <laughs> I don't know that it's the worst thing in the world, you know. Again, to go back to different way, that, ways in which my time at Greenbelt has influenced me, Icon would always do some crazy shit, <laughs> and everybody would go, and... Do you remember that? Like Icon from yeah. Belfast would do some yeah. amazing experiential thing. And there was somebody who had written a piece about the clergy sex scandals in the Catholic Church in Ireland. And maybe the Magdalene houses too. I think that's when a lot of that stuff about the, the Magdalene houses had come out. And in this piece... There was so much righteous anger, I mean rage, like understandable rage about what people have, the evil that people have perpetrated and then done it in God's name. I don't know how something is worse than that. I I don't know how you can get worse than that, you know? And this piece was so powerful. And I remember at the end, they they were like, we're gonna burn it all down. We're burning it all down. And at the very end of that piece, they said, and then maybe we're going to sit in ashes for a while and perhaps somebody will find a loaf of bread and hold it up and talk about the night Jesus was betrayed and we'll hand it to each other and share. And and I was like, oh my God, I, I will never forget that piece because it influenced my ecclesiology in this really powerful way. Because ever since then, the the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation was 2017, and my ass was all over the world because I'm like the designated Lutheran, you know? (laughs) So people wanted to hear from the Lutheran. And and I gave a lecture, and and people were like, what's the future of the church? I'm like, I think that the future of the church is fine because no matter what happens, I, I believe if we lose everything, if we lose... Christian colleges and we lose our institutions and we don't have the ecclesial bodies and we don't own all the property and we don't have the budgets and the membership roles and we don't we can't garner the power anymore if all of that is lost I still think the church will be fine because people will continue to gather in groups of maybe two or three maybe it's in like abandoned parking garages maybe it's in parks maybe it's in people's homes and they will still lift up bread and talk about the night Jesus was betrayed and when he gathered with his faltering friends for a meal that tasted of freedom and they will give it to each other and say this is the body of Christ we do this we do this in remembrance of him and it's for forgiveness and it's for you and like 
and because of that, even though, back to the decline issue, even though so many of these institutions are in decline, I do not despair for that reason. And my thinking around that was influenced by a poem I heard years ago at Greenbelt. I mean, some of what you were saying there actually sounds quite exciting. And, you know, rather than despair, do you almost, can you see benefits in that building up from the ashes? And Look, properties and budgets and membership roles and power in government and all of that, I, those are signs of a kingdom, but I don't think we can assume that those are signs of the kingdom. I mean, that's, and that's also not to say that form of church was wrong and should die. Like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sort of criticizing the faithfulness of those who developed that as the way we do church. I'm just saying it's okay to let some of it go if it, we don't have to cling to it through our fear and anxiety. It's okay. It's okay. There's so much that we could get into you asking you about your time um, building the 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 community that you did in Denver with House for All Sinners and Saints. But can I ask you first how you found it transitioning away and leaving that community, oh, in yeah. a sense, behind and mm. finding your your new space as, as a public theologian and, in a way, mm. bringing your love of, of liturgy and of scripture out into the public square, as it were. How has that been for you? Oh, my God. I'm sorry I keep referencing Greenbelt. I'm not doing that to kiss your asses, but genuinely, <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot tell the story without talking about Greenbelt again. <laughs> genuinely. And here's why. In, I don't know, 2008, maybe, I was there, and I, uh, there was like an emerging church get-together the night before. Right, So it was like <clears throat> all the people who were in fresh expressions, alt-worship, whatever, <clears throat> emerging church communities, we all hung out the night before. And we sitting in a circle and people introducing themselves. And, um, and when, I, when I spoke up, the only two people who laughed at stuff I was saying were the other two Americans <laughs> in the circle who I didn't know. <clears throat> and then when they started talking, I was the only one laughing at what they were saying. And so we, we found each other later, and, uh, and they ended up becoming lifelong friends. And I had no idea who these people were before. And their names are Sarah Miles and Paul Fromberg. And Sarah Miles had written a book called Take This Bread. I'd seen the cover, but I hadn't read it. So we didn't know who each other were. And, and the friendship that I had developed with Paul and Sarah uh, profoundly changed my life. And for, for many reasons, but here's why. Uh, here's one reason, and it, and it speaks to what you asked. Paul and Sarah were the second generation of leadership at their church, St. Gregory of Nyssa, in San Francisco. It's an Episcopal church in San Francisco. They were the second generation of leadership. They took over from the founders who, God bless them, I could say a million good things about them, but they stayed too long. The founders stayed longer than they should have for the health of the church. So as I was starting House for All Sinners and Saints, I did so in a, a quickly close relationship. I mean, talking a couple times a week on the phone with Sarah, who, had, who was the second generation of leader who took over for founders who stayed too long. So from the beginning, I had a cautionary tale 
<laughs> of what would happen to a community if the founder couldn't let go. <clears throat> and so because of that, I'm so grateful because of that, I started talking about my departure the first year we were together. And by the time I knew it was time to go, uh, what happened was I felt like when I was working at house, it felt like God gave me provision, meaning it felt like some things that I didn't have enough of in my character, in my personality, in my spirit, but that I needed for ministry, it felt like God provided extra for me, right? So one thing is I don't have the capacity to welcome hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every year of my life to actually engage with them, to show curiosity about who they are. In, in and of myself, I mean, it sounds callous. I don't care who they are, right? <laughs> I can't. I can't. I don't have the bandwidth. But I was provided the ability to genuinely say, hey, welcome. Tell me about yourself. Let me connect you to this person. So we're on the spring retreat uh, a few years ago, and there were 20 people I didn't recognize at all. And I was like, I didn't want to ask them about themselves. And I thought, oh, there it is. That's the sign. That's the sign It's that I'm done. Because that provision didn't feel like it was there. And that community needs somebody who can do, who can do that. My leave taking from house was blessed. It was blessed. And... Um, it was, it was a love and gratitude-filled and laughter-filled leave-taking on, on all sides. So, But House is doing so well without me, which is perhaps the thing that I'm proudest of. And um, I did go to their little sort of altered Holy Week services that they did that were COVID-safe and was just thrilled to be there and just help Reagan and run and fetch things he needed. And um, I mean... He, it, I, Every choice he's made, every decision that church has made, I've just looked at and went, man, good for you. Well done. You guys are doing, you're just doing it, you know. How, Nadia, how and why did you start the house for All Saints and Sinners? So I wanted to see what it was like to plant a church where we didn't have to I didn't feel like I had to culturally commute. Where like I had a commitment to show up as my whole self, you know, edges and all and hope and hoped that that was invitational for others to do the same. <clears throat> and that's kind of why I started it and how I started it was it was hard. I mean, I think back on those first few years and it, it was, it, there were high, very high highs and very low lows. I mean, um, it was like lots of fun, so much creativity because like we could do whatever we wanted. We just made shit up all the time. We had so much freedom and we came up with such goofy stuff, including, by the way, I brought beer and hymns over. We, we started doing <laughs> beer and hymns in probably 2008, 2009. <clears throat> and, and so, there was like, there was joy in it, there was freedom and laughter, but there was a, a great deal of frustration because it, it felt impossible to start a church from scratch in the urban core amongst a heavily cynical population. Um, and every, it, I experienced a lot of f feelings of futility and burnout, even depression. Like I would, I was working 50, 60 hours a week. I had coffee with everyone in Denver, like 
twice, probably. I mean, it just felt like we'd get one new person finally, and then a couple would move away for graduate school. And it, it was just... It, it, those first years were hard. I don't know how to put it other than like, I have a formidable will and, and drive and ambition and focus. And if I apply it singularly to one thing, it's, it's to be, you can't contend with it. I mean, it's, it's just intense. It's almost like having a superpower and there's a, there's a dark side to that. Like, um, I don't know how else I could have started the church, and now looking back at it, I'm so horrified at things I didn't pay attention to because I had the singular focus, at like people who were hurt along the way, ways in which I didn't extend care in ways I should. I mean, there was collateral damage in the fact that I, I was like that for the first few years to the point that I'm like, I will never put my, that cape on again. Like, there were, I made mistakes because I was only listening to myself, and... And so because of that, when I realized, oh, my God, I was wrong about this thing that I was fighting so hard to have happen, that ever since then, after that, after those first few years, I never made unilateral decisions anymore. Like, I, I, I didn't trust myself almost. Like, I would always consult with my leadership team, like, saying, this is what I'm thinking and why let's make this idea better by talking about it and making a decision collectively about whether to move forward with it or not. As you've begun to find yourself uh, as, uh, as a public theologian and, and all your, uh, the, you know, the new projects like the confessional podcast and mm-hmm. um, your writing has just gone from strength to strength in terms of its recognition, mm-hmm. which is, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. Um, I think I read that you, you feel like your, your vocation, your calling, your gift, your ministry is best in badness in in difficult times and mm. i'm just wondering you know it's easy for us in the uk to look across and think trump four years followed mm. by a pandemic it doesn't get mm. any worse than that does it i just don't mind naming things that are hard for me i don't mind like digging into articulating struggle or failings or sin even you know like i because I believe that God really can make all things new, because I do believe in grace and mercy and forgiveness so deeply, I don't have any fear about naming why we need those. And I think sometimes people shy away from speaking the truth about why we need grace, you know. In, in, I don't know. In, instead, they want to appear positive, you know, I just want to give a positive message. And I'm like, I want to give a message that's not vapid optimism, you know, <laughs> that like is actual hope. And actual hope is kind of gritty. You know, it has a grit to it. And I don't want to blow sunshine up people's asses. You know, in my ordination vows, in the ordination vows of the Lutheran Church, you actually say you vow to not give people illusory hope. That's one of our promises, you know? So, like, these prayers that I write, I've been publishing prayers every Sunday since the pandemic started, but all I do is I sit down on Sunday morning, I don't think of them in advance, and I do my little meditation, I have a cup of coffee, and then I check in and I go, genuinely, 
not in a pietistic way, not in a funny way, genuinely in my core, what do I want to say to God right now in as honest language as I can possibly muster? And I just write it down and then I publish it and people are like, oh my God, you it's like you crawl inside my head every week and say what I don't have words for. So I don't know how to make that into a job description. Like, I don't know how you put that on LinkedIn, you know, as like, here's what I do. I excavate the darkest corners of my soul. <laughs> then I just say, hey, guys, look at this. <laughs> the needs that people have had during the pandemic are not needs that we've necessarily paid that much attention to before, you know, because of all the distraction and the background noise. And um, actually, uh, day after tomorrow, I'm launching the pilot group for some, for this thing called the chapel. I mean, I'm, I'm opening basically an online chapel because I want to offer a pattern of daily prayer that we can share no matter who we are, or what we believe, that we can actually pray at the same time together and that we can study a book together and talk about ideas together. And even as the world opens up, I think our need to be connected in some way without being present to each other is going to remain. I think we're going to recognize that 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 stays a need even while we do have more options. So. Nadia, can I ask you about um, your recent art project that you did around... Um purity rings <laughs> uh, so, yes I just probably because I don't know how often the word vagina has been used on the green belt podcast but it's about to be used a few times <laughs> bring it on <laughs> I've got a counter I've got a counter going <laughs> I'm, like one, I'm like one of our stewards at the big top I'm, cl I'm clicking you in and out <laughs> yeah that's good I think it should be a drinking game so you guys <laughs> Every time Nadia says vagina, everyone drink. Okay. Um, so when I was writing my recent book, Shameless, I interviewed people for a year and a half and asked them, what message did you receive from the church about sex and bodies and gender? And, and then how did that message affect you in your life? And then how have you navigated your adult life since then? And that, that is what led to writing the book. And what a lot of people talked about is what is called the evangelical purity movement, which started in America, but I think it, it, it came to the UK as well in certain ways. Maybe not as strongly, but it's there. And it's the idea that in order to earn God's approval... And to, and to have God's best in your life when it comes to sex, you have to keep yourself pure until marriage. You cannot, you should not, um, <clears throat> definitely not have sex before marriage, but also they upped the ante. You should make a promise to God and to your future spouse that you won't have any sexual contact with another human being until you're, you're married. Now, how that demonstrated itself is in these purity rings, and in these purity balls where these young girls, 12 years old, 13 years old, their dad would come with flowers and they'd go to this like daddy-daughter dance and then her, their dad would put a purity ring on their finger and they would promise their dad that they would not have sex with a man until another man put a ring on their finger. It was, it's so icky. I mean, how 
gross is that? I mean, it's just ugh, disturbing, you know? But so many women in the interviews talked about, like, oh, I still have this purity ring. I don't know what the hell to do with it. But, like, part of me just can't throw it away. <clears throat> even though I don't believe in those things, and even though I'm trying to heal from that ideology and figure out who I am, I don't know what to do with this thing. And then that's when I had the idea that I should collect them because of that scripture. It shows up more than once that talks about we... we we melted our swords into plowshares in our in our spears into pruning hooks. There's a spiritual precedent in our tradition for repurposing things that were that were created to hurt us or that caused us harm and repurposing them into something that can heal us. And so I invited women all over the country to mail me their purity rings and I had them melted into a sculpture of a vagina and I had it I gave it to Gloria Steinem, uh, you know, it was a big part of the women's movement here in the U.S. I don't know how instrumental she was in the U.K., but I gave it to Gloria Steinem, this icon, feminist icon, um, at, a, at an event um, on stage. So um, I got a lot of flack for it. Uh, people were very disturbed by it. I thought it was both hilarious and healing, which is my favorite combination. <laughs> yeah, perfect combination. <laughs> what kind of flack were you getting for it? Well... I got it from people who said it was idolatry. They're like, look, she's worshiping a golden vagina. I'm like, okay, that's hilarious. But then I got it from some feminists like, um, actually, that's a vulva. It's not, a, the vagina is the inside part. I'm like, okay, girl, noted, you know, like, you win. Um, <laughs> as though I'm unclear about female anatomy when actually when people talk about a vaginal shape in art, that's the shape they're referring to. But that's cool. You got points for that. <laughs> <laughs> Last week on my podcast, um, if people want to look at the confessional on my podcast, Joshua Harris, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, the seminal text for purity culture in America, was my guest in the confessional. And I have never had an episode that I that more people commented how healing it was to hear it. Like people who were, if you have been wounded by those ideas, um, take a listen to that podcast. You know, we're at a time in our culture where cancel culture you know this idea of like if you said something in the past you can find a tweet from 10 years ago and put it out there and it seems tone deaf to what everyone understands the world to be today your whole life can be just kind of canceled you, you're not allowed to be a public person anymore any apology you offer is not good enough I mean there's a pernicious spirit right now that says it's about justice Wow, this is about justice. And I'm like, it doesn't feel like that in my body when I'm seeing it happen. <laughs> it feels like revenge. It feels like bitterness. And I want to take the harm that has been done to people through things like purity culture, and I want to take that harm seriously. I want to listen to the stories seriously. But I don't think healing comes from then crucifying the people who perpetrated it. Um, and so... You know, in this podcast, I listen with with genuine compassion to people's stories, you know, and say, where's he? Because maybe they're healing if they've hurt people or done something they regret. Maybe our healing at how they harmed us is wrapped up in their healing from having done it. You know, 
that's a, there's a mutuality in our healing and um, I don't think we're healed by by being the people who if we were hurt then if we inflict harm will will be healed by it it's it doesn't work like that even though that's our instinct you know in a sense where you've just come to reminds me again perhaps of of this centrality of grace in your life and in your work um and this sense of you know we we can only be free uh if we learn to forgive and and if we learn to operate in grace i I guess but it feels impossible i mean the problem with grace is it completely fucks with our ideas of justice yeah yeah it just does you know with like Oh, but people should get what they deserve. Oh, well, yeah, well, yeah. I get. I know where you're coming from, but it's not gonna. It's not gonna. That's not gonna heal us, you know. I. But also, I don't ever want to diminish the truth of harm that's happened to people. I mean, this is why we find ourselves in the pendulum swing that we're in, is that for generations, no one listened to people who were victimized. No one. No one heeded the voices at the margins. You know, there's a reason that 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 this is what's happening right now. So that is also not the solution. I feel like um, with your public presence as it is, like we we get a lot of um, emails coming into Greenbelt that um, kind of call us different names or different things, or we have insults kind of hurtled at us. Do you have do you have one that keeps happening to you? Do you have a favorite? Um, sometimes I publish them. I just retweet them. So some when people say something really horrible to me, I don't comment on it. I just I just um broadcast it. <laughs> so, um I mean, I I think people are a lot of times people are uh don't feel like first of all they're like you you have no authority cuz you're a girl. You shouldn't be a pastor cuz you're a girl. I'm like, "Oh my god." Yeah, there are a million reasons I probably shouldn't be a pastor. Literally, being a girl is not one of them. But okay, um, you know, do do better research. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was one last week where this woman was like, um, she called me a false disciple maker, and and I said, um, yeah, you know, I think I ordered a false disciple maker off a late night infomercial once. And then I ended up never using it. And it's like in my junk drawer. Um, Somebody else commented. Yeah. You know, you buy those thinking you're going to make false disciples every day. And then you realize six months later, you haven't made one. (laughs) So I think we have to just see the humor I think we have to see the humor in the insults, if at all possible. To me, that's that's the healthiest way to approach them. I truly don't internalize it. the The only times I internalize it is when people on my own side do it, like when the social justice people come after me for something or say I'm not being inclusive or you're not doing this enough or why aren't you? like when I'm attacked from the left. That's when it, I'm like, come on, guys, really? Like, this is going to help? Like, I'm like, being a progressive on, on Twitter is like a poorly designed video game in which you never actually engage the other side, the other team. You just get ranking points by pointing out how people on your team are wrong. <laughs> I'm like, meanwhile, the other side's not even engaging. And we think we're 
doing social justice work when really we're just cannibalizing each other you know oh thank you thank you so so much for your time Nadia it's um it's a real pleasure for Catherine and, and I to get to know you a little bit better I'm excited. I I am choosing to believe that Greenbelt is happening in person and that I will be there. And I am holding for I don't know why it's been my big like, it's going to happen. It's like my thing I'm holding on to, but it is. <laughs> We're all holding oh, on to it. Oh, thank you. We want it to happen. Yeah. So it, mean, anyway. it means a lot that you're holding out for it too, Nadia. For sure it does. I am. And you know, my prayers, those are powerful. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not any better than anyone else's. <laughs> All right, friends. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you yeah. in August. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was lovely chatting to you. Yeah. All Have right. a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you. Cheers, Bye. Nadia. Bye. <laughs> lovely conversation with Nadia and you know the first chance I've really had to like talk to her properly we I invite her every year and we talk to her every year and I say hello to her every year but I've never sat down and had a chat with her because you know she's only at the festival and she's really busy and I'm really busy and so this was lovely yeah same here I was just struck by how sort of relaxed and how funny and how candid and open and honest and just natural and engaging she was she spoke so positively about Greenbelt as well which I thought was lovely it's a little bit overwhelming uh you know we look at Nadia and we think wow way to go and she looks at Greenbelt and thinks way to go <laughs> and uh, she was describing a time at Greenbelt before you were working at the festival Catherine um did it sound like a different sort of festival or you know did you were you curious about some of the things that she was talking about I was curious I was curious about a lot I know that we used to have a lot more of like uh, various forms of alternative worship we had a lot more spaces in Cheltenham so we just were able to have so much more content that was on the fringes and that you know we could experiment with and I really was interested in that and I think it was a good challenge to us actually to think about how we can start incorporating that in Greenbelt because sometimes you get into a way of working that's restricted by things like venue spaces and the cost of them and the size of them and all that kind of stuff and you know where they can be on site and whether how many generators we've got and blah 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 blah. but it's a good challenge i like that inspirational and there's no doubt that you know the noughties when nadia first started coming to greenbelt we had this massive sort of like emerging church alternative worship fresh expressions type component at the festival it was almost like a festival within a festival people would come quite literally from all over the world to be part of this emerging church sort of gathering do you think it's still needed what what kind of different flavor do you think greenbelt's got now because i i always think that greenbelt is a bit of a reflection of the times that we're living in so it's it's kind of quite responsive what do we need it to be now so sometimes it's good to look back on the past but i I wonder whether that was a response to what was needed in that time like you say that was a response to a particular time and a particular sort of passion and interest on the part of an emerging young christian community from all around the world about you know saying how can church be different not just in terms of what it thinks and what it believes but in terms of how it sort of shapes itself and the way it practices its worship meetings and um, that doesn't feel to be as urgent a question partly because 
Um, and this isn't Greenbelt hasn't done this, but partly because some of those that thinking and those ideas have been mainstreamed now within denominations. You know, we have things like fresh, expe- fresh expressions and pioneer ministries and all these sorts of things have become formalized within the church, whereas at one time they were just creative sort of radical fringy things. What do you think about Nadia's story about how she grew up in her Christian tradition? some of that ring true? Yeah, but I was going to ask you as well about it, Catherine. How about, does it, some of it ring true for you? Because as well as the conservative nature of it, there was that very, very gendered male nature of it. And I wondered, you know, when you were growing up, your experience of Catholicism through your schooling, did how did that come across? Did, as a woman, did it feel like that was something you could be fully part of? I do remember the purity ring stage of my faith. And I really remember, and my parents aren't really religious, so I don't know where this came from, but I, re- I remember wanting a purity ring. I don't know whether it's just because I really like silver jewellery or whether, <laughs> <laughs> whether there was something kind of idealistic that I was shown as a young child about that once you have a ring put on your finger, you are looked after by a man. And that was something very comforting and that was something to aim for. And I think that's all wrapped up in that. In my upbringing, um, I didn't, there, there wasn't talk about the purity ring stuff. That wasn't sort of like the way we described it. But certainly in our youth group, there was really, really heavy and insistent teaching around no sex before marriage. So it was just more of a a theological thing that you just, that was just the wrong thing as a Christian. You needed to save yourself for your lifelong partner. Do you know what? I remember when, this must have been in primary school, um, I remember the analogy that was used. We went away to, I guess, like a little Christian day camp where we all sung sung together and we got told stories. And the stories we got told around sex before marriage was it was like, taking a toothbrush out of its packaging and using it once like you can put the toothbrush back into the packaging but it will never be clean again i don't even know where to begin to respond to that (laughs) catherine (laughs) so nadi talked a little bit about cancel culture which has been i guess um really in the mainstream for maybe a year or two just a potted explanation, Catherine. You know, we use the phrase cancel culture. What are we really talking about there? I guess what it's what it's talking about is bringing people um, to answer for transgressions that they have done in the past. And I guess, for want of a better word, punishing them in the now. And is it also to do with the fact that not just sort of like punishment, punishing and holding them to account or you know, hauling them over the coals and stuff. But also, actually, I don't want anything to do with you because of that. In other words, no dialogue in the present or... Yeah. Uh, It's weird because, you know, Nadia was talking about it, um, that she felt like it was like revenge, which has a very negative connotation. And I'm a bit... I, I think that obviously people can be forgiven and people shouldn't be judged by past indiscretions for the rest of their life but I do think there is something about not giving people that platform anymore which actually is is good maybe I don't know probably got a bit more thinking about it maybe I'm too vengeful still (laughs) you've always struck me as a very (laughs) 
very vindictive person, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's quite complicated, isn't it? I think um, that whole sense of the fact that we're trying to make a better, fairer society where everybody has an equal right to flourish and to thrive. And we're looking back and we we, re, we know now that, that lots of the things that we were all involved in and the ways in which we thought and acted were just... <laughs> you know, just less than ideal for loads of people. And so we have to change. Um, and yet, I guess, Christianity, most of the, the major religious traditions would, would offer this opportunity for transformation, for redemption, for forgiveness, for a fresh start. So it's how you put those two things together. It's quite complicated, isn't it? It's it's weird, isn't it? Because when you think about, you know, some of the things that the church has done over the past few, like, tens of hundreds of years definitely lots of harmful stuff and things that people are trying to make amends for now does it make it all okay i don't know there's lots in the press at the moment about um, in canada about the way that the indigenous peoples of canada are, are discovering more and more instances of the way that the church institutions uh, schools in particular um and and places that looked after children in care uh, you know they're discovering mass graves of 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 children and quite rightly there's outrage and there are churches being burnt to the ground all over canada as these these discoveries are coming out into the open and you think how can you ever move beyond that you see when i think of cancel culture i think of uh i instantly go to like musicians especially like and and celebrities and entertainment figures who have been caught out for acting terribly towards fans and young women and how they have stopped being booked and how they have had their um careers kind of cancelled i mean there was that there was a thing during the football um recently where that comedian had done some tweets that i guess he was trying to be funny but was super racist and instantly like venues cancelled him his agent dropped him and he was his career just ended I, I don't know whether that's a terrible thing. I'm not saying that he's a bad person, but should he have a platform? I don't know. A lot of comedians now, when they're booked, to, particularly to go and perform at student unions and colleges, are asked to sign a disclaimer for the sort of subjects that they will not address in their material. And it, I, So there's a bit of a... It's a bit slippery for me as to where you draw the lines around freedom of expression, things that just should not be... Um, talked about thought or done it's not very straightforward i don't think it is a bit slippery and actually we're still working out i think it's such a new thing that we're still working out and we're going to make mistakes in that process and we're probably going to want to be forgiven for those mistakes can i ask you about something that i didn't quite understand which was this idea it ran through the whole of the podcast but this idea of grace Oh, no, now you're assuming I'm an expert, aren't you, Catherine? Yes. So I think grace is an idea that is very particular to Christianity. I, I don't know enough about the world's religions to think if there's an equivalent idea and thread in other faiths. There probably is. But talking as a Christian, from my perspective, grace is, is a really incredible nugget of an idea it's, but it's not an idea it's it's a thing and it's this it's no matter who you are no matter what you've done no matter how hard you try to be better to improve 
to do the right thing, you're going to make mistakes. Grace is about unearned favor. So in other words, nothing you can do can make God love you any more than God loves you already. Um, And some people find that a little bit difficult to really take on board. It's clearly absolutely central and fundamental to Nadia's work and ministry and life. But the reason she keeps on going on about it is that actually a lot of religious people, a lot of Christians, if they really sit down and think about that, find that quite a challenging idea. Because what it says is that it says we're all messed up. We're all equally in need of support, of grace. And, you know, no matter how you think you're performing, no matter how clever you think you are, no matter how often you read the Bible, it's a fantastic equaliser to say that in Jesus Christ, we are all equally loved and we all have equal sort of access to to God. It's given to us. It is the ultimate gift, in other words. Nothing you have done could have deserved it. It's just freely given to you. And that's quite a radical and revolutionary idea. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. It also, for me, it kind of, and this is prob- this is maybe where I get the wrong end of the stick, but for me, it also suggests that, like, this central idea of love, regardless of what somebody has done to you or who they are, that you always approach it with love, the same kind of love, whether they're doing good stuff or bad stuff, is that love is almost the way to get people through the bad times and the good times. It, it absolutely connects with that. Yeah, the centrality of love. Love God, love others, love yourself. Grace does take you back in the direction of thinking and needing to behave on the principle that what's the most loving thing to do? I think that's what Umpo Tutu said to us is in any given situation, what is the most loving thing to do? That is the right thing to do. <laughs> No matter what you think the rules are or the regs or what it says in Leviticus chapter whatever, what's the most loving thing to do? Do it. So when we spoke to Nadia, we still thought we were going to have a festival. I noticed that at the end of the podcast. (laughs) We were all hoping and praying that it was going to be happening, but it's not. So it feels odd to hear those words, doesn't it, now about her wanting to be there and us wanting her to be there in the field. Mm. But, you know, things happen for a reason and sometimes it's really hard to realise what those reasons are. So you just got to go with the flow. We've got Prospect Farm coming up at the at the end of August and I'm really excited about that and what that can show and lead to and keep making, keep doing. Keep making, yeah, and things don't have to happen in the same form for the same spirit still to be present, so... <laughs> I guess we've come to the end of the season. Yeah, it's uh, it's really flown by. Um, I've really loved making these podcasts and listening to these guests. Me too. And, you know, we've been through a crazy year and we're about to come out of it, or we might have already come out of it by the time this gets released, um, into a new phase where restrictions have been dropped and we're just learning to live with COVID. So, so what are you hoping that people remember or take forward from this past year? If I'm really being honest, my early hopes for what might emerge from the pandemic have slightly ebbed away or diminished 
in those early days of the first lockdown, I'm thinking of the spring and early summer of 2020, it felt like we were having some form of awakening, some form of almost like spiritual moment of how the world was a fragile place. Our communities were fragile and that we needed to look after one another in the world in which we live. If I'm really being honest, the longer this thing has gone on, it feels like a lot of that sense has slightly unraveled and we've become just disillusioned and bored and frustrated and a little bit angsty about everything and so I'm less hopeful now than I was back then about emerging with a better sense of things I don't know how do you feel about it Catherine I keep hearing things from people or things I'm listening to talking about how especially with young people there's this like change in attitude I guess that might have been stirring for a while that people are moving out of cities maybe they're moving back home maybe they're wanting to move to greener spaces um kind of it almost feels like there is a people are fed up with living lives where they're spending half of their income on rent and they're getting paid terribly and they're working a lot and they're having to live away from their families and their communities in cities and I think I'm wondering whether this that this pandemic has sped up that idea and I'm hoping it's sped up that idea I would be exciting excited to see that So I have loved um, hosting these podcasts with you, Catherine. Um, do we hope that we'll come back with another podcast in the future? I'd like to come back. I think it's, I mean, the thing that's been so interesting over this past year is that there's going to be like a, there's almost a record of what's been happening and the things that have been brought up such as during such an interesting time. And I think, I think it'd be interesting to carry on doing that. Also, I've just loved it. Maybe it's a selfish reason. <laughs> yeah, selfishly, I've I've loved it. I've loved the guests we've chatted to. I've loved the way that you and I have learned a little bit about how to do this. You know, we're still very amateur. Um, one, we did have an email in from someone who said something really interesting about the fact that we listen mostly to our guests and we rarely, if ever, sort of challenge them or disagree with them. And that was a very good observation. I think that's partly because you and I feel quite sort of like deferential and that respect translates into mainly just listening but perhaps you know as we get better at this we could you know get a bit more Piers Morgan <laughs> <laughs> what, an, what an idol to have what? <laughs> oh, absolutely I've got a photo of him on my mantelpiece We always like it when people uh, respond to the podcast to tell us what you're thinking. You can email us on stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. You can also let us know what you're thinking on social media. Our Twitter is at Greenbelt. Our Instagram is at Greenbelt Festival. And we're Greenbelt Festival on Facebook too. Yeah. And if you want to um, get notifications about the podcast coming out and get a bit more in-depth, um, some links and references and resources, we do a Friday email uh, that you can sign up to, greenbelt.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'd like to say a few thank yous to the people who help us make these podcasts. Thank you to Daisy Wedgarrett on the staff team who helps us produce this podcast. And thank you to Paul Truman again on the staff team who helps us frame the episode. And to Josh and Jake on our Recorded Talks uh, volunteer team. They help us edit this whole thing and put it together, make it sound half decent. So thank you very much to them.
And one big thank you to Lee Baines from Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for the use of his track, which we use in our titles. Um, it's called I Can Change. And we are forever grateful to Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for everything they did. There'll be lots of people writing in to give a much better definition of grace than that. <laughs> Answers to. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Where is that coming from? What are you hearing? Can you hear that? No, what are you hearing? Oh, I'm hearing music. Where's that coming from? Oh. I thought you got a new kind of like toy where you could put in a little jingle at the end of an interesting conversation because as soon as we ended that conversation that song Magic Carpet Ride started to play. No, I'm not I'm not nearly that clever Catherine at my technical stuff. <laughs> I feel like this is a conversation that needs to be had at Greenbelt with people that know way more about it than we do. We need so to wheel in the experts. Yeah. Get them in. <laughs> Don't let Catherine and I just superficially banter on about this stuff anymore. <laughs> Can I just quickly check? I, the washing machine has just started. Can you hear the washing machine on, on my microphone? I don't I, think so. No, I think we'll go with it. <laughs> 